Welcome to episode 18 of The Tar Sands Diplomat, the satirical diplomatic thriller set at the Canadian mission to the European Union in Brussels. In the novel, the Canada-EU CEDA trade deal runs into trouble and McGregor has to scramble to deal with the disastrous can-do Canada trade mission launched by the Prime Minister in response. Meanwhile, over in the real world, the Canada-EU CEDA trade deal has run into trouble, facing tough ratification votes by all EU parliaments, to be precise. And actual Canadian diplomats in Brussels are scrambling to deal with an upcoming official visit by Prime Minister Trudeau. Hopefully, a real-life McGregor in Brussels will let us know how that goes. Now back to the Tar Sands Diplomat with Keith reading episode 18. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 21, The Old Lobby Listening Post Gambit. The next morning, I sat in a corner of the lobby of the luxury Hotel de l'Imperatrice on Avenue Louise. Violet's network of concierges reported that Culloden regularly took his morning coffee there. The people he met with were exactly the kind you expect to run into in the lobby of the Imperatrice. Politicians, media personalities, celebrity academics, and business people. Ottawa doesn't have an equivalent hotel. When a new arrival at the French Embassy in Ottawa once asked me where the closest luxury hotel to Parliament Hill was located, I told him it was on Fifth Avenue in New York. I sat with the Financial Times open in front of me, with a good view of the lobby. Culloden arrived and sat on one of the lobby couches, sipping a coffee and reading the paper. Violet had told me to get there early and occupy the corner couch, which would force Culloden to sit in the center of the room, with other couches nearby. The plan was for us to wait and see who turned up. At the very least, we would find out something about his current interests. If we got lucky, we might even find out about his can-do Canada activities and what he had in store for us next. Once someone sat down with Culloden, a tall and blonde stagiaire from Violet's firm would appear and sit nearby with her back to him. She would pretend to be the vacant plaything of some Russian oligarch, complete with brawless see-through summer dress, high heels, sunglasses, and music earphones jammed in her ears. She would then open her laptop and pretend to do whatever young people do on the internet, all while filming and recording the scene. Violet insisted on using the latest Apple laptop, both because the camera was unobtrusive and because the teen mistress of a Russian oligarch would never be seen with anything else. Violet was too well known and waited across the street. I waited as Culloden checked his Blackberry and flipped through the newspaper. I watched with interest as various Brussels figures moved through the lobby. I saw Maxim Mashinsky sit down for breakfast with some Russian-looking businessmen, and, sitting across the lobby, were some of the Frank Energy executives I'd seen at Violet's party. A few minutes after Culloden sat down, a woman entered the lobby and sat down with him. She was in her early 30s and wore black pants, boots, and a short black leather jacket. She was carrying a satchel that said Deutsche Welle on the side. I hoped she was something more interesting than a journalist with Germany's international broadcaster. Culloden smiled and shook hands with her, and they sat down across the coffee table from each other. Culloden signaled to the waiter for two more coffees, and the woman pulled out a voice recorder and placed it on the table between them. On cue, Violet's stagiaire appeared. She walked languidly into the lobby, fiddling with the iPhone connected to her earphones. Her dress would have got her arrested in Ottawa. Every eye in the lobby, including Culloden and his friend, followed her across the plush carpet. 
She soaked in the attention while pretending to be unaware of it, and walked slowly across the floor. I had asked earlier if having such an eye-catching listening post was a good idea. Violet replied enigmatically that, in the lobby of the Imperatrice, it was the women wearing bras that made people nervous. Our stagiaire sat down in the right distance from our quarry, not so close that it seemed strange, but not so far that she'd be out of earshot. She fiddled some more with her iPhone, then flipped open her laptop. Culloden and the woman from Deutsche Welle leaned in again to continue their conversation. Violet's stagiaire seemed to be contentedly tapping away on her laptop, which I hoped meant that she was capturing the video and audio successfully. This might actually work, I thought to myself, with some excitement. After about 15 minutes, the German woman thanked Culloden, collected her recorder, and left. Culloden read the paper for a few minutes until two more people showed up. I recognized one as the red-haired woman from the Green Alliance, the other as a young man with a goatee and a laptop covered with stickers that said things like, Information Wants to be Free, and Hacktivist Collective. They sat down and started to talk to Culloden, but the latter said something to them and they looked at our stagiaire. Then the trio rose and walked to the door. They were talking about the clubbing scene in Majorca as they passed me. I cursed silently to myself. Culloden was too wily to catch that easily. We didn't know who might be watching Culloden's back, so the stagiaire and I waited a decent interval then left the hotel separately. Back at Violet's office, I told the stagiaire she was superb. She refused to be reassured. Fifteen minutes of perfect capture on that stupid Deutsche Welle puff piece. Then the guy with the goatee starts to talk about their web strategy and Culloden cuts him off. She muttered in annoyance as she showed us the useless video and audio she'd captured. At least it worked on the New Zealand dairy guys. Violet smiled. Why don't you put on some clothes before you freeze in the air conditioning, she said. And I still need your slides on the Armenian budget crisis by noon. That client doesn't do late. The stagiaire stepped out of her heels, gathered her electronic impedimenta, and pranced barefoot out of the room. You have clients who are interested in Armenia? I asked Violet. Armenian sovereign debt in particular, she replied. You'd be surprised what hedge fund guys are interested in these days. These people are scary smart, but most of what they know about the region they learned from the movie Borat. They don't know if Yerevan is the capital city or the local drink made from fermented goat milk. I'm Henry Kissinger in comparison. I told her how, just before I left Ottawa, my surly underling and I wrote a think piece on what the sanctions on Russia would mean for Armenia. Thanks to its troubled relations with neighboring Turkey and Azerbaijan, the country remains highly dependent on Russia. We interviewed a half-dozen people, including an old friend now working for the UN in Yerevan and the former first secretary from their embassy in Ottawa, who owed me a few favors. It was a good piece of work, although I have to admit we received no response to it from either Ottawa or the embassies in the region. Well, said Violet, now that you've admitted to knowing that much, I'm going to set up a call with my clients. She dashed off an email to her assistant. These guys would love to get you locked in a boardroom and drain your brain directly into PowerPoint. Anyway, I tracked down Duvel's daughter, continued Violet. She's got red hair, but she's also petite, five feet tall, and so delicate, I don't know if she could open a twist-off beer, let alone club someone to death. She said she met Julian at his flat before they drove together to dinner at her parents' place. Julian left to take Cornelia and Lilia to the stagiaire party. Duvel's daughter went with other friends and met him there, but he said he wasn't feeling well and went home early. Did you ask her if that was her red pubic hair in his bed, I asked? Yes, McGregor, said Violet. I meant to, but I forgot how to say pubic hair in French. Oh, of course not, I muttered in embarrassment. 
Violet went on, but I did mention that the police were telling people their theory about the red-haired Russian prostitute. She was horrified. She let me know that she'd been in Julian's bed that weekend. Nicely played, Violet, I said. Thank you, she replied. It wasn't easy. She seemed genuinely upset about the murder. But does that prove, I asked, that there weren't any Russian prostitutes involved? Violet thought about this for a second. I suppose it is possible that Julian had Duvel's red-haired daughter over in the afternoon for a pre-dinner romp, then had a whole other party with Russian prostitutes later that evening. And they were also red-haired, I said. Or it is Duvel's hair in the bed, said Violet, and the people who came over later either didn't roll around in his bed, or none of their hair fell out if they did. And there were pornographic magazines on the bedside table the whole time, I said. And somehow no one got their fingerprints on them. The Russian prostitute theory seems even shakier than before. Violet Stagiaire reappeared a few minutes later, wearing a navy suit and some sensible shoes with her hair pulled back severely. She put some PowerPoint slides about the Armenian budget on Violet's desk. Back to my day job, said Violet, waving goodbye to me. Good luck with that reporter. I met Lefranc and we headed directly for the Brussels office of the newspaper that published the leak first. Its office was conveniently located near Schumann Traffic Circle, close to both the European institutions and Kitty O'Shea's pub. A menagerie of Brussels organizations filled the building, from representative offices for the Bavarian government to the headquarters of the Union of European Translators. Despite the paper's impressive London brand, the Brussels office was more like a small closet. Stacks of paper, half-eaten meals, beer bottles, and tangled knots of wires and microphones covered every horizontal surface and most of the vertical ones were covered with yellowed sports page clippings or those photos of barely-dressed girls that the sun likes to run on page three. In the middle of it all sat E. Graydon Flitch, Brussels correspondent. His name had been on the article about the leak that had so badly spoiled my breakfast at La Quincaillerie. Flitch looked up from his desk, a pen in one hand and a cigarette in the other. His bloodshot eyes took in our blazers and briefcases. What the fuck do you want? he inquired. We're from the Canadian government, said Lefranc smoothly. As part of our investigation into the death of our colleague Julian Utherwaite, we'd like to ask you some follow-up questions. Canadian government? Follow-up questions? Flitch seemed to regard both as equally ridiculous. You haven't been here before, so how could these be follow-up? I was wondering when you guys would show up. This meant, of course, that Sherlock hadn't really bothered looking into the leak. Flitch stuck out his hand. Let's see some cards. I want to make sure this is on the up-and-up. He spoke with a downmarket Essex accent, but his word choice was more like a reporter from a Pulp Fiction 1950s crime novel. Lefranc pulled a card out of his pocket and laid it on the desk. Dirk Beddo, Privy Council Office, Ottawa. I noticed a red stain on one corner and realized Lefranc had taken it from the pile of cards on my coffee table at the flat. There'd been a small accident with the port the night before. I introduced myself as Cornelio Frett from the Canadian Mission. My cards were stuck in customs, I'm afraid. I said. Evidence of government incompetence seemed to reassure Flitch. Okay, so you're legit. What do you want? We want to ask you about the leak that you published, said Lefranc, trying to play the straight man for once. We think it's related to the murder. Are you thick as well as ugly? Flitch snorted. I'm not talking about my sources. If you want them so badly, join the queue of government creeps bugging my phone. We're just trying to establish timing, said Lefranc, remaining calm. Email? Fax? brown envelope in the mail, leggy blonde in the park. Lefranc's attempt at a joke went nowhere. You're wasting your time. All I'll say is facts. It came in at seven in the morning, so it couldn't have been one of you bureaucrats. 
you're not even out of bed before nine. And who even uses a fax anymore? I'm lucky I even noticed it. Same for your stupid briefing notes a couple days later. Now get out of my office before I write a story about you and some small children. Can we see the fax? Asked Lefranc quickly. Just for forensic purposes. What number did it come from? Flitch brandished his laptop menacingly. Small children, he threatened. We walked down the stairs. An improbably violent argument was underway in the translator's union office. We emerged onto the street and strolled towards Kitty O'Shea's pub. I pointed out that we'd learned there were two faxes, and both were sent before working hours. Two faxes made sense, since no newspapers had mentioned the briefing notes until the Green Alliance handed them out at our media lunch. But why wait a few days in between? Did they need time to doctor the briefing notes? Or did they want to keep the story alive for more than one day? And why did the leaker use a fax? Faxes left phone records. Was he or she not computer savvy? Or maybe the leaker knew emails can be traced back, even to online email accounts you think are anonymous. Or perhaps it was because the stolen documents were printouts and the leaker didn't own a scanner or have time to find one. Lefranc pondered all this. He was still frustrated with how unhelpful Flitch had been. I think Human Rights Division has it all wrong, he muttered. Some journalists do deserve to be tortured. That's it for episode 18 of the Tar Sands Diplomat. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to contact me with any questions or comments, my email address is khalliday at tarsandsdiplomat.com. And if you haven't done so already, please leave a review for us on iTunes or Amazon.ca. And don't forget to tune in again next week via iTunes for episode 19 of McGregor's Adventures.